Hey everybody, this is Brian Zond and welcome to the Word of Life Church Sermon Podcast. I'm glad you're interested in what we have to say as we try to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would ever be so inclined to help us financially, you can do that at wolc.com. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, saints of God, in-house and online. It's the Lord's Day. The time of worship we just had, that was, it felt sacred, holy, something other. I think it's, it's a lot of reasons, but part of it is we're entering into this sacred season. And I sense that and just wanted to express that I appreciated how beautiful that was to be able to worship like that together. Amen. Well, yes, we are in the season of Lent now. And during Lent, I want to preach on the wood between the worlds. And we begin with the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When Perry and I walked our first Camino back in 2016, it began by happy accident on September 14th, which on the church calendar is Holy Cross Day. We didn't plan it that way, it just happened. As we completed the first day, a long and hard day, we got checked into the monastery there in Roncesvalles. Valles. We're staying in the dormitories they have there for the pilgrims. I'd gone to the chapel in the monastery and was just sitting there, not really thinking about anything, but I did notice the crucifix in there. And I was just looking at it, And I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me instructions for this Camino I was just beginning. I felt the Holy Spirit said, enter every church you can, pay attention to the crucifix, ask yourself, what does this mean? And don't be too quick to give an answer. And so that's what I did for the next 40 days, 500 miles, walking across northern Spain. There's lots of churches. We went in everyone we could, find that crucifix, pay attention to it, ask this question, what does this mean? And don't be too quick to dismiss it with a canned answer. Now, because we are on a pilgrimage, we're on the move, and I'm not seeing the same crucifix over and over and over. I'm seeing a different one every day or many times every day. I'm seeing a different one. One of the things that this did for me is it, it drew me deeper into the story. You know, we have, the, we have a cross and then we have a crucifix as far as our Christian imagery. And they both have their place, but a cross is an abstract symbol. A crucifix is telling a story. You look at a crucifix and you go, something's going on here. And I noticed, as I would pay attention to these crucifixes, that the story can be told in many ways because they didn't look all alike. Some looked one way, some looked another. There was a, well, there's one where Jesus is regal of sorts. Um, I, don't, I can't remember where I took that picture, but I remember taking it, but I don't remember where it was. And it's, it's somewhat a, a typical crucifix, except Jesus doesn't have a crown of thorns. He has an actual royal crown like a king would wear. And so the artist, whoever it was, 
who created this crucifix, no doubt hundreds and hundreds of years ago, was trying to communicate, you know, he really is king of kings. And that cross really is his throne. His crucifixion was his enthronement and Christ is the king. And so on this one, uh, the, the suffering of Jesus is not highlighted. You can see it, it's there, but it's in the background. What stands out is he is a king. But then at uh, uh, Santo Domingo de la Calasada, remember that place, Perry? It's, it's a cool place. Santo Domingo de la Casada. They had that crucifixion. And you went, whoa, that's, that's telling a different story. There you really see a suffering Christ. You see the horror of crucifixion. And that, that crucifix kind of, you had to pay attention to that one. That one sort of just grabbed you. And you stood there and you, you weren't sure what to think, but you, you let that image wash over you. Some people have asked me, uh, what, is, what was my favorite one? I, I, I don't know if I can say that, but I do remember in uh, Zabaldika, this was like on, just like on the, maybe the third day, uh, we, we took an alternative route that made it a little bit longer, which we weren't really prone to do. <laughs> it's long enough as it is. But somehow we were persuaded to, and, and to, to leave the main route meant climbing the steep hill. And I'm so glad we did it, but I'm a little surprised we did. It was, you know, actually it's probably Perry. You might think it was me, but it's probably Perry said, no, because she wants to see everything. And uh, there, was some, there was supposed to be a church up there that was worth seeing. So we climbed this hill and we got up and there was this little tiny church with this lovely nun welcoming everybody, handing out uh, information about their little church in whatever language you spoke. She had a stack of all kinds of languages. And I went in that church and paid attention to the crucifix and it looked like this. No, no, no. No, the, the Zabaldika, the, the one with the, like the forest. Yeah, there we go. And I, I, I saw it from a distance because, you know, it was at the other end. I'd entered the church and I thought, oh, it's like Jesus is crucified in a, in a forest. All those leaves. But as I got closer, there are actually post-it notes cut in the shape of an arrow or a fletcher because, you know, you have the arrows on the Camino that mark the way. And on each one of them, pilgrims had written prayer requests. So each one of those, there was actually a prayer that a pilgrim is presenting to Jesus. So this is, this is Christ crucified in a verdant forest of prayer. And that was a, that was a very peaceful place. Um, now, yeah, now we can... Because I didn't even know I had that. <laughs> yeah, that, I just not in my nose. But <laughs> this, is, this is the one that I saw the most. Because it's the one place, what's the name of that town? Promista. Um, it's the one town we stayed two nights. Perry had a cold and I had blisters to beat the band. Oh, man. And we, we just needed a day off. So, so, so we spent it. And I visited that church I, you know, several times, many times. Probably three or four times and would sit there for an hour. And that crucifix there actually is a thousand years old. And uh, I, I felt that crucifix working on my soul as I sat there almost always with no one else there. Occasionally someone would come and go, but I just sat there because I didn't have to walk that day. 
and, and looked at it and said, what does this mean? And just let all kinds of possibilities enter into my soul, into my thinking, into my mind. I've come to think that when we consider Christ crucified, we need to look at Christ through what I would call a theological kaleidoscope. You know how a kaleidoscope works. You look through it, toward the light, you see a geometric design, you see various colors, and then you turn it. And the glass and the mirrors and all that, they fall into another shape. You see now another geometric design with different colors. I think one of the worst things that is done with the cross of Christ is to reduce it to a single tidy little atonement theory. So that we look at Christ crucified, the very center of Christian faith, and we say, what does this mean? Well, it means... Next question, please. Ah. That, that is to treat the cross far too lightly. So I like this kaleidoscopic conversation regarding Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not just one thing. If you are going to tra traffic in atonement theories, at least keep it plural. Because there isn't just one meaning. It speaks to us in a myriad of ways. I, it, this makes me think about these angelic creatures that are right around the throne of God, described in Revelation chapter 4. And John says, they cease not day or night to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Think about that. Angelic creatures who cease not day or night forever to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. How does that work? Do they have like a, a terrible job? Are they automatons on infinite repeat? You just have to keep saying this over. I don't think so. I think it might be more like this. These angelic creatures are granted a glimpse of one aspect of the glory of God and then reflexively without thought, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then in the next moment, the kaleidoscope turns. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They live in a constant state of ecstasy, always seeing something new about the glory of God. That's how we should approach the cross. The cross is many things I describe it one way as the wood between the worlds. It's a phrase that I take from C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the magician's nephew. The wood between the worlds is actually the woods, the wooded grove, a grove of trees that has pools in it that connect to various worlds, Narnia being one of them. And so for C.S. Lewis, it's the wood between the worlds that is this connecting point with various worlds. I'm using it, of course, to speak to the wood between the worlds as the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is the wood between the worlds. There is the world that was and the world to come, and between those two worlds is the wood upon which the Son of God was hung.
The cross is the epicenter of history. Between the alpha of creation and the omega of new creation, there stands the tau of the cross. And the cross is the center, the interpretive center for all of scripture. The Bible's a big book, often unwieldy. If you just want to just proof text things, you can prove anything you want by just you know, finding a little snippet of a verse that says something like you want to say. And then you, you say, I've got my evidence, and you fling it down. No, the, 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 the word of God needs to be interpreted as a whole which means we need to find the interpretive center, the vantage point from which we will read the rest of the text. That is, we need to find the heart of the Bible and where is that? Well, we have a clear answer. It's in the Gospels. It's with Jesus. It's at the moment of his crucifixion. We stand with Christ at Golgotha and interpret the rest of Scripture from that vantage point. So we find the heart of the Bible in the cross, so that we interpret the whole of Scripture from that vantage point, and we ask, who is God? Well, God is the one who is crucified between two thieves on Good Friday. This is why Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified because that's not limiting. <laughs> if we say, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, so I, I'll just... I'll just preach the same sermon every day. No. To know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified is ultimately to know everything that can be known about God. Because everything that can be known about God is somehow present at the crucifixion. So I can say this, it's the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. The eternal moment of forgiveness. Divine solidarity with human suffering the enduring model of discipleship, the supreme demonstration of divine love, the beauty that saves the world, the refounding of the world around an axis of love, the overthrow of the Satan, the shaming of the principalities and powers, the unmasking of mob violence, the condemnation of state violence, the exposé of political power, the abolition of war, the sacrifice to end sacrificing, the great divide of humankind, the healing center of the cosmos, the death by which death is conquered, the lamb upon his throne, the tree of of life recovered and revealed. And with that brief list of interpretations, I've come nowhere close to exhausting the inexhaustible revelation of Christ crucified. All right, so now we need to, I just, we just ran off to the races here. I say we, you know, I did. You just sat there and watched, but so I need to slow down and kind of go back to the beginning and try to help you recover the original scandal of the cross. One of the worst things that can happen to the cross is it becomes cliche. Oh yeah, yeah. We see a crucifix, yeah, it's a religious thing. Jesus died for, yeah, yeah. I want you to begin to, I want to help you recover the original scandal of the cross. So let's, we'll just start with at an anthropological level. 
when you look at a crucifix, what are you actually seeing? What is it? Not, don't, don't give me a theological interpretation, a religious implication. Just what, what is it? It is a naked man nailed to a tree. Now, this image has been replicated billions of times. How many crucifixes are there? Not only in churches, but hanging around people's necks or wherever you would find such images. Human beings are given to artistic endeavor as a means of interpreting the phenomenon of being. I mean, the cave paintings of Caceres, Spain are 64,000 years old. We've been doing this a long time. Symbolic representation that that supplies some sort of interpretive meaning to our existence. But what does it mean that the most replicated image in art in human history is that of a naked man nailed to a tree? That must mean something. Long before it ever had any kind of religious meaning, it would arrive in the world as either an absurdity or a scandal. Mm. So the Apostle Paul says, we proclaim Christ crucified, a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, yes. If you're going to claim this is the Messiah, that's scandalous in the Jewish world. If you're going to say this is a God or the God, that's nuts, that's crazy in the Gentile world. But to those who believe it's the power of God unto salvation. Now, of course, religion is at play in the ubiquity of crucifix images around the world and throughout history. Yeah, I get that. But it's not a, it's not a religious image you would naturally assume. I mean, this is not like raw, shining like the sun. This is not Krishna riding triumphantly through the heavens in his chariot. This is not the Buddha sitting in the tranquil bliss of enlightenment. This is a man nailed to a tree. And as Fleming Rutledge said in her remarkable book on the crucifixion, the cross is by a very long way the most irreligious object ever to find its way into the heart of faith. So let's see if we can grasp at least something of the original scandal of Christianity. You know, we've been at this 2,000 years as the church, but let's, let's go back much earlier. Around the year A.D. 200, someone scratched a blasphemous graffiti on a plaster wall in Rome, evidently intended to mock a Christian by the name of Aleximenos. So what we, what we have here is this crude graffiti. You have an image of a crucified man who has the head of an ass being worshipped by someone. And the inscription written in misspelled Greek is Aleximenos worships his God. That tells us a lot right there. 
I mean, just with that bit of information, what do I know? I know Alexa Manos is one of those early Christians. And someone who knew Alexa Manos thought that was foolishness. That was absurd. That was ridiculous. And he went to the trouble to make a little graffiti to mock Alexa Manos. Alexa Manos worships his God. Any God that ends up on a Roman cross must be an ass. That's the message. That shows you something of the scandal of it. That the Christians didn't depict their God in glory and triumph, but in crucifixion. And this guy, whoever created the graffiti, thinks that's worthy of nothing but mockery. What did Alexa Manos think about it? Well, we may know. Because in a room adjacent to where that graffiti is found, there's another graffiti written in another hand which simply reads, Alexa Manos is faithful. God bless Alexa Manos. I want to find him in heaven and just give him a heart. You hung in there. You received that abuse. He said it was an abuse. I took it as, as glory to be insulted for worshiping my Lord. Well, this is a fascinating glimpse into the world of early Christianity, a time long before a crucified God could be dismissed as cliche. So how do we explain the improbable rise of Christianity in the Roman world? I mean, the, the idea, okay, we're gonna start a religion. Let's see, let's have a God I tell you what, let's, let's mix it up. Our God is a crucified Jew from Galilee. You know, what odds would you give for that religion to take off? It's offensive and absurd to everyone. So how do you explain the almost inexplicable rise of Christianity in the Roman world? The only answer, there's one answer, the only answer is resurrection. So that I'm going to preach on the cross all every Sunday in Lent, and I'll be using the term the cross or the crucifixion or Christ crucified repeatedly. I'm determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But understand that when I say the cross or the crucifixion or Christ crucified, I always mean the crucified and risen Christ. I always mean the cross in the light of resurrection. I always mean the cross that we see with the light that emanates from the empty tomb. Because without the resurrection, listen, you, didn't, you would never have heard of Jesus. There, there's a, maybe a tendency for modern people to think that crucifixion was exotic and rare. It was not. It was disturbingly common. When Jesus was a small boy, five miles from Nazareth, in Sepphoris, there was a Galilean uprising against the Romans, and the Romans crucified 6,000 Galilean men. 6,000 at one time. Jesus wasn't even afforded the minor dignity of his own crucifixion. Part of the scandal is he was one of but three that day. So crucifixion was common. And you would never have heard 
of Jesus of Nazareth if the whole of his story was he was a Galilean who claimed to be Messiah and was crucified by Pontius Pilate. The reason we have heard of this one is because this one was raised from the dead. We know of his crucifixion because of resurrection. And so, as I'm stressing, the cross has a myriad of appropriate interpretations. But the first thing that most people associate with the cross is the forgiveness of sins. Amen. I think that is a correct instinct. But we must connect the cross to forgiveness in a theologically accurate way. What the cross is not, it's not the appeasement of an offended deity by the execution of an innocent victim. This is what New Testament scholar N.T. Wright describes as the paganizing of atonement theology. So we can say it this way, the cross is not what God inflicts in order to forgive, the cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. We can't look at the cross and then do violence to the Trinity and imagine the Trinity turning on itself somehow so that God the Father can find the wherewithal to forgive. No, 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 no. The source of the lethal violence of Good Friday is entirely human and demonic. It does not come from God. In other words, we don't find God on Good Friday acting through Caiaphas and Pilate. We find God on Good Friday in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. The cross is not where Jesus saves us from God. The cross is where Jesus reveals God as Savior. So don't fall into the idea that we think of the cross as a good cop, bad cop form of evangelism. And then you turn John 3, 16 into, for God so hated the world that he killed his only begotten son. No, no. The cross is not where Jesus saves us from God. We don't need to be saved from God. We need to understand that we need to be saved from sin, Satan, hell, death, all that. We need to be saved from that, but not from God. The cross is not where Jesus saves us from God. God was not our problem. The cross is where Jesus reveals God as Savior. So you could think of it like this. The early church, their favorite way, the preachers and the theologians, their favorite way, they didn't, they didn't talk about atonement theory. That, that would have been far too clinical and probably they would have felt it was irreverent. But they did preach about it and sing about it a lot. And their favorite... I don't know what to, word to use. Their favorite metaphor, and it's drawn directly from Scripture, is it was a ransom. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But understand, the ransom is not paid to God. Ransom is payment to an abductor so that those that are held prisoner can be released. We were not imprisoned by God. We were imprisoned by hell and death and the devil. That's what we were imprisoned by. And so the ransom is not paid to God. The ransom is paid to the abductor, to the captor, to the kidnapper. And then the church fathers went on further and they loved preaching on this. It was a ransom that the devil should never have taken. 
Because once Christ went down into death as a ransom, he could go into death because he was mortal and could die, but he could not be kept there because Christ ultimately did not enter death as a captive, but as a conqueror. Death could swallow the mortality of Jesus, but death could not digest divinity, and death was destroyed from the inside out. But now I've kind of rushed all the way to Easter, so let's come back to land. The cross is where, the cross is not where Jesus changes God. God is immutable. That is, God doesn't change. God, is, God doesn't mutate. The cross is where Jesus reveals God. The Son never acts as an agent of change upon the Father. So don't think, well, God was really, really mad at me, and God kind of actually didn't love me, but Jesus came and changed his mind about me. No. I mean, that's, that's, that is an abhorrent misinterpretation of the cross. First of all, the Father doesn't change. The Father's immutable. doesn't change. And what Jesus does is reveal that he doesn't change the father. He reveals the father. So how many times do you hear Jesus say, especially in the gospel of John? "Eh, I'm only saying what the father says. I only do what the father does. The father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. So Jesus doesn't change God. He doesn't act as an agent of change upon God. God doesn't change. He reveals God as he is because being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. When the sins of the world became a sinful singularity on Good Friday, the one who knew no sin was made to be sin. One way I think about forgiveness of sin as it pertains to the cross is that on Good Friday, all of the sin of the world, past, present, future, every sin, coalesces into a hideous singularity and was sinned into the body of Jesus so that the one who knew no sin became sin. I was speaking at a theological conference in Basel, Switzerland in 2015, and we had a day off, and Perry and I went with our good friend Brad Jerzak and uh, Peter and Anna-Marie Helms, and we went up into Alsace, France, and there visited the Eisenheim. Well, we, saw the, we saw Matthias Grunewald's Eisenheim altarpiece. It looks like this. Um, what does sin look like? It looks like that. The, the one upon the cross is the innocent one, the holy one is the logos of God made flesh. And when God came among us, we did that. I say we, I, I, don't, I don't mean each one in, but I mean as a civilization, the world as a civilization, this is what we did to the innocent one. But what is he doing? He's absorbing it. He's not retaliating. He's not calling 12 legions of angels to bring vengeance. He, he absorbs it and it distorts him and makes him the visible identity of what sin is and does. And there's John the Baptist. And there's the, what is John saying? He's pointing and what is John the Baptist? I mean, this is, this is theology. This is not history. John the Baptist wasn't at Golgotha. This is theology. John the Baptist is the forerunner. What does he say about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God. And you see the Lamb of God there at the foot. 
Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. What is he doing right here? What is Jesus doing? He is absorbing all of the sins of the world as the single sin, as deicide, the murder of God. He's absorbing it into his own person that he might take it away and forgive it in mass. On Good Friday, the sin of the world coalesces into a hideous singularity that it might be forgiven in mass. And that's why, that's why we can also depict the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in terms of beauty. My, uh, I, I, Florence, Italy, you know, this is the, this is the, this is the home of the Renaissance. It's, it's the home of Michelangelo's David, Botticelli's Venus, Ruccinelli's uh, Domo. But my favorite art in Florence is at the San Marco Monastery where Fra Angelico, between 1439 and 1444, just covered that monastery. I mean, just, not just in their chapel, church, chapter house, but I mean in the, in the halls, in the kitchen, in every cell. He covered it with frescoes, and, and this, is, this is a fresco that's simply above the entrance to the dining hall. And I took that picture of it. And what's interesting is, go, go, back, go back to the eyes, and that's grotesque. You see the horror, you see the ugliness of sin, but then you go to Fra Angelic, and that's beautiful. Are they in competition with one another? Are they, they might be in tension, but both are true. Because at Calvary, on Good Friday, we see the ugliness of human sin, but we also see the beauty of divine love. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so here we see Christ depicted in beauty with, um, you don't see agony. It's ironic, it's peaceful. You see a delicate little crown of thorns, tiny little rivulets of blood, Jesus' head surrounded by a bronze and red halo, and even the hint of a smile as enigmatic as Mona Lisa. Once sin entered the body of the crucified God, there could be no escape. On Good Friday, the sin of the world was drawn into the infinite gravity of God's grace. At Golgotha, the sin of the world as a hideous singularity was drawn into the greater singularity of God's love where sin itself was undone. Christ's self-sacrificial death upon the cross became a cosmic supernova irradiating time and space with divine forgiveness. Every sin, every transgression, every act of idolatry, every deed of injustice, every stone age murder, every space age iniquity, every notorious crime, every hidden sin, it was all forgiven. That's beautiful. One more time. For Angelico's crucifixion. Ultimately, we speak of the cross in terms of beauty. And if our churches here in the 21st century can learn to appreciate and hopefully to some extent begin to enact 
the kind of beauty present in a Fra Angelico fresco and thereby become pavilions of peace instead of culture war barracks, perhaps then we can begin to recover our swiftly diminishing relevance. Amen. Stand up with me. And let's begin to prepare ourselves to come to the crucified and risen Christ who shares with us his body and blood that we might have everlasting life. Join with me now in confessing our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let us confess our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy in the name of Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.